Okay, amen. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to pick up today, if you all want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We've been making our way through the book of Acts, and we're finding ourselves today in a really significant chapter. That's why I wanted to go ahead and get started, even though everybody wasn't here yet. We've got a whole lot to cover. Forgive me if it sounds like I'm going really, really fast, but I'm going to have to go really, really fast to, to cover everything. Um, if you all remember the setting here, where we're at in Acts chapter 15 is, last week we looked at Acts chapter 14. And in Acts chapter 14, uh, the apostles Paul and Barnabas had wrapped up their very first missionary journey together. They were gone for about a year and a half, planting all those churches in the, in the island of Cyprus and Asia Minor, southern Galatia, all those places they planted these churches. And so now they're back home. They're back home in their home church of Antioch. They've been gone for about a year or two years, we think. And uh, chapter 28 there, the very last verse in chapter 14, ended with, and they spent a long time with the disciples. So they had gotten home, and they had got to spend a long time with the disciples. And life was good. Life was good. They had been on a journey. They They had served the Lord, risking their lives to spread the gospel, and now they were home at their home church. And so... Now as we get into chapter 15, um, there's really going to be an intermission to the good times. The good times are going to get broken up here a little bit. And in chapter 15, we're going to see two very significant disputes, um, problems, some controversy. Um, Believe it or not, there's going to be controversy in the church. And uh, so let's just go ahead and let the text introduce us to the first controversy here in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And this is what it says. Remember, the setting is is in Antioch at Paul and Barnabas' home church. That's where we're at. So verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1 says, So men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so think about how significant of an issue that this is how significant this message is and this gospel presentation that these men, these unnamed men from Judea, are propagating this message that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. That's a very um, significant thing that they're talking about. They're talking about how it is you're, you're to be saved, how one is to escape the wrath of God. And once you start toying around with that message, Um, it's going to raise eyebrows, especially in Paul, the Apostle Paul's church. And there could be no more serious matter than than to discuss how it is one is to be saved. Now, these unnamed men who came up from Judea and came into Paul's church, um, it doesn't say much about them, but we can assume that they were at least claiming to be Christians. They would have been affirming that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, um, I say all these things because they wouldn't even have had a, an open door to teach in Paul's church if they weren't, weren't confessing to be Christians, if they weren't confessing to be from, from the accepted churches down in Jerusalem. So we know they were at least um, saying that they were, in fact, Christian. Um, but come to find out, once their full teaching was exposed, um, basically their message was salvation is by faith plus the law of Moses which as soon as you go faith plus anything, you're leaving um, the gospel of grace. Faith plus anything is leaving the gospel of grace. So they're trying to add circumcision. 
They're trying to add the, the sign of the old covenant in, in Mosaic law keeping for, for salvation. And I just thought about this situation. You know, this is Paul's church. Uh, I would not have wanted to be in that room when these teachers came in and started teaching uh, the Apostle Paul's congregation this, this, this heresy, which is what it is. I wouldn't have wanted to be in there, but you can guess what Paul's reaction would have been to somebody teaching a false gospel. Look at verse 2. Look what, what, it, look what it says they do. It says, verse 2 says, Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. Right, as I said, they're not going to overlook this. And, and yeah, you can only imagine um, how all this went down, how, how this dissension and debate went down when the Apostle Paul heard this false teaching. Um, think about it. Paul and Barnabas had just returned from a year or two of, of risking their lives for the gospel of, of salvation by grace through faith. They just risked their lives for two years preaching the gospel and then to have some people come in and kind of uh, uh, undercut that gospel message that they just risked their lives for, you can imagine how serious they took that. Um, but Paul and Barnabas were definitely not having it. Uh, but I think, as we're going to see as we keep going through the text, obviously some people in this church must have been stumbled um, by this message. Some must have obviously wondered, is this true or not? Some must have thought, maybe this is, is true. God has always required his people to be circumcised all the way back from Abraham. So maybe God does want the Gentiles um, to be circumcised. Um, so what we're going to see is, in order to put a stop to this, um, we're, we're going to see how they're going to answer this question once and for all. They're, they're going to they're lay it out, uh, what the truth is, and to how someone is to be saved. Must you receive circumcision? Must you keep the Mosaic law? Well, let's go keep reading here in verse 2 and following. Halfway through verse 2 says, The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. And so what happens is, in order to settle this matter, uh, the church in Antioch said, you know what, Paul and Barnabas, and take some others with you, go up, go up to Jerusalem, which, if you remember on your map, um, Jerusalem is actually south, but everything in the Bible was going up to Jerusalem. Right? That's, that's kind of interesting. But, um, so they're going to go up to Jerusalem, and they're going to meet with the apostles, and they're going to settle this matter once and for all. What is the gospel? What must these Gentiles do to be saved? Um, so, for Paul to go to Jerusalem now, this is now his third trip to Jerusalem since his conversion. This is Paul's first time to meet, uh, third time to meet with the apostles. Um, so, that's significant to realize that the apostles in Jerusalem already know Paul's gospel. They, they, they fully know what Paul preaches, what his message is. They know that he's been preaching salvation uh, by grace through faith to all these Gentiles. They're not going to be at all surprised by his gospel. Um, everybody there knows what he, what he preaches. And, and because they know what he preaches, the text says they accept him. They receive him in. 
brother, the Apostle Paul is a brother, a brother to the apostles in, in Jerusalem. They, they appreciate his gospel. They preach the same gospel. Um, so they greeted Paul and, and accepted him. And there verse 4 told us that, so what Paul does when he gets to Jerusalem, um, he's telling the stories about everything that happened um, with these Gentiles and their conversions. He's doing really the exact same thing that Peter did. If you remember from Acts chapter 10 and 11, when Peter went and preached the gospel to Cornelius and these Gentiles, and these Gentiles were saved, when he came back to Jerusalem, he had to explain everything that God was doing. And in the emphasis is what God was doing. It wasn't something they were, they were doing, and they weren't undercutting the Mosaic law in order to make this thing work. This is what God was doing. So as Peter and uh, Paul and Barnabas came into the church in Jerusalem, they're going to describe everything that God was doing, all the miracles and signs and wonders that Paul uh, was able to do through God, through the Spirit, as he's ministering his gospel of grace. Uh, they would have described how all these Gentiles um, were receiving the repentance that leads to life through their gospel, the gospel of grace, how God was working through it. Um, they would have been sharing all the effects of their mission work and the effects of their gospel, uh, the true gospel. So they're in Jerusalem. They're sharing everything that God has done. And look at what verse 5 said. There's always a but. In verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And so this teaching is everywhere. It's at the Apostles' Church down in Jerusalem. It's reached all the way up into Antioch where Paul and Barnabas' church was. This teaching that, um, that, that these people must come under the, the law of Moses and, and receive circumcision uh, to be saved is infiltrated everywhere. Um, this is a very serious issue, a very serious time for the church as this teaching is, is all over the place. Um, I thought it was quite interesting to to consider again the time frame that we're looking at here. Does anybody remember like about what time frame we're, we're looking at here um, at the church now? This is about A.D. 46 to 48, something like that, which is significant because, because think, this is about 15 years after Christ ascended to the Father. 15 years of gospel ministry from the apostles, from Peter, from James, from John, from Paul, Barnabas, 15 years of gospel ministry, and this debate is still going on here in the church for 15 years. They're still having to battle, what is the gospel? How are people saved? Um, and you may wonder, 15 years, how could they possibly still be debating this? But the reality is, is that this debate is never going to end. This debate still goes on today, yeah. even having the scriptures that we have, having um, all of this worked out for us in clear detail in the scriptures, people still battle the gospel of grace. Yes, sir? You know, I was going to say, Chris, is that one of the reasons why that is, you know, because it's not because Christians don't know what they believe for 2,000 years. It's, about, mm -hmm. it's not like we, we're still trying to figure out what is the gospel, you know, but mm -hmm. even in this text, you know, like you can see what this, you know, um, the leader of the Pharisees coming up, you know, against the church. So when the church is always trying to refine the gospel, you know, it's always been historically because of the antagonism coming from heretics. Mm -hmm. 
you know, so like areas, you know, Athanasius, the Council of Nicaea, things like that. Yeah. It's always because of heresy that the church is having to define the gospel. Right. Not just because, well, we don't know what it is yet. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's what liberalism would teach, but. Yeah. So there's been some challenges. It's interesting that even back then, you know. Yep. There's been, the reason they have this council, the reason they go to Jerusalem is because there's been some challenges to the gospel. It's not because they were wondering what it is. They've been preaching it, right. you know, but there's been a challenge to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, as I said, like, this, yeah, even today, there's still challenge to the, in, in new challenges. Because think about it. Nobody today is really pushing that you must be circumcised to be saved. Nobody's really saying that anymore. Uh, but there is plenty of people saying that uh, you must be baptized in order to be saved. There's people still pushing that. There's people pushing a whole plethora of, I mean, there's, there's plenty of denominations that would have on their sign out in front that would say Church of Christ. They would push a full-out works righteousness salvation, faith plus works, unashamedly saying you are not saved by faith alone. So this, this debate will never end. Um, but, yeah, I'm so thankful to God that we have all of these debates already worked out for us, you know, in the early church. We know that we're saved by grace through faith. This debate's already happened once, you know, the, the apostles have given us the answer. Um, so, so that's a blessing for us. Um, I think even these debates may have been uh, more easily had in, in the very early church here, being that they're in a transitional time in redemptive history. You, you almost got to understand, like, these guys were coming just right out of the Old Covenant. They, they, they knew nothing but Old Testament ways and laws. You know, so they're now coming out of the Old Testament, into the New Testament, out of the Old Covenant, into the New Covenant. You know, they're trying to work out all of these, what carries over from the Old Testament, what doesn't. You know, they're really trying to work through some of these issues. You know, that's what we're seeing before our very eyes, the early church working out what carries over, what doesn't. Right? So it's really a significant time um, in in church history. So you have these two sides being drawn in the church here. Um, those who are preaching salvation by grace through faith, those teaching salvation by grace through faith and Mosaic law keeping. These are the two sides being drawn. And verse 6 says, Because of this, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. Peter stood up and said to them, You know, Peter is always the first to speak. Peter always jumps up with something to say. But here... Um, as opposed to a lot of times in, in, the, in Peter's past, here he has a good word for the church. He's not going to want to take this back. Um, let's look at what he says here at the end of verse 7. He says, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. Verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. And so as I said, this is indeed a good word from Peter. Um, He's reiterating the same argument he made in Acts chapter 11. He's just saying, look at all these things that God himself has done. God called me, you remember his vision, the vision when he's on top of the roof, the clean and unclean animals, to go to Cornelius' house and share the gospel with the Gentiles. God called him to do that. God, through the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of faith alone, gave the Holy Spirit to these Gentiles. That's what Peter's explaining here. He's explaining how God himself had accepted these Gentiles. And guess what? He accepted these Gentiles. He gave them the Spirit before circumcision, 
before even baptism. He gave them the Spirit based on faith alone. Um, that's what he says there in verse 9. Look at the means of, of his cleansing of these Gentiles. He cleansed their hearts by faith. Not by faith in circumcision, not by faith in keeping the law, by faith. That's how God cleansed their hearts. Um, so Peter is saying that this is all of God's doing. And just as Gamaliel said, if you remember, um, you don't want to find yourself fighting against what God is doing. That's what they're arguing for. This is what God's doing. This is God's gospel. This is God's way of bringing in the Gentiles. You don't want to find yourself fighting against him. Uh, look how Peter says that in verse 10. He says, now therefore... Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So what's, Paul, what's uh, Peter referring to as he's saying you're trying to put a yoke um, on these disciples, on these Gentile believers? What's the yoke he's talking about there? The law. The law. Yeah, the yoke of the burden of having to keep all of the law to be, to be saved, to be justified. That's an unbearable burden. I mean, you really got to feel the weight of what Peter's saying. And Peter's saying is, it's impossible to keep all of the law in order to be justified. He's like, none of us ever even did it. Why are you trying to make the Gentiles do something not even any of our fathers could do? When he's talking about the fathers, he's referencing all of the, the patriarchs of Israel, all of the great men that the people of Israel, even these Jews, would have admired. None of them were able to keep the law in order to be justified. So why in the world would you think it makes sense to put that now on the Gentiles? You see what Peter's saying? That that's not going to help them in any sense, in any way, to, to gain salvation and gain justification. Um, so lastly here, look at verse 11. Because this is really what I'm calling Peter's definitive statement on gospel clarity. This is in verse 11, Peter's definitive statement of gospel clarity. Now pay, pay attention here also. Um, because this is actually the very last time we're going to see Peter in the book of Acts. This is it right here. We're, Luke is moving all the focus from Peter in that church in Jerusalem. He's moving focus to Paul and Antioch and, and all of the missionary endeavors to the Gentiles that's, that's going to go on from there on out. Um, so listen to how um, Peter goes out, because I think he goes out in a blaze of glory with this, with this declaration here in verse 11. Peter says, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So Peter's definitive and, and last statement to be made at this council is that we are saved by grace. We're saved by grace and not by law keeping. Um, I've, I've heard this question asked, and, and anybody can tell me if, if you know where this is from. I couldn't remember where I've heard this from. Maybe you have. But I remember a guy being asked this question. He says, are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? And the man's answer was neither. We're saved by grace. Right? Do you, do you all understand the distinction there in, the, in that answer? The question was, are you saved by faith or are you saved by works? And he says neither. You're saved by grace. Now, what's the, what's the distinction there that that, that guy's trying to make in his, in his reply? What he's trying to say is the, the, the basis of your salvation, you are not saved because you have faith. You have faith because of grace. You have faith because of grace. What actually saves is the grace of God. Just like the Bible teaches, what, what comes with the grace of God when God is saving somebody is faith and repentance. These are gifts of God's grace. 
So we're actually saved by grace. We're not saved because we were um, smart enough, spiritual enough, whatever. We're not saved because we're good enough to believe. And we're not saved by works either. We're saved by grace. It's a very important distinction. Yes, sir? And I agree with you, but how many, just listening to some stuff lately, how many people do you think are missing just that point? Everyone. And, 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 <laughs> and here's a more yeah. important question. Are they our brothers? Yeah. Yeah, we, we say they all are brothers because the means by which our salvation is faith, right? Some people don't understand why it is that they have faith, but because they're, they're only, uh, because they're not putting their trust in their works, they're, they're, they're only going through the conduit of faith, that's enough to be saved. You know, you're not trusting in what you've done. Um, it's a very inconsistent place to be. But look, most people who don't, and we're talking about like Armenian brothers and sisters, you know, people who, you know, who, who are in fact our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, they, they say that you're saved by faith, which we would agree with in the sense that we understand that faith comes out of grace, but even the most famous verse of every Arminian is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Everybody knows Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but nobody knows what they're saying when they read that verse. What does Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say? It says, for by grace you are saved, right? It's through faith, right? So you've got to start with the foundation of that verse. For by grace you have been saved. And what's the means by which that grace saves you? It's through faith. Right? So, I mean, for me, I always take, you know, anybody who's struggling with that to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, because everybody knows that verse, but they don't grasp the significance that it's the grace that's actually doing the saving. It's not a grace that everybody in the world gets equally, and, who's, and whoever, you know, can find in themselves to believe is the ones who saved. The grace actually brings faith, brings repentance, and fully saves. So we're talking about an effectually working grace, a grace that actually saves. I think that's that's exactly what Peter's saying here when he says, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. doesn't even mention faith. He just says it's grace that saves you, and the grace brings faith, of course. Um, but that's it. That's, that's the last we're going to hear from Peter, you know, in, in the book of Acts. Yes, sir? So is there an act of grace? It's an act of grace. What is the act of grace? The act of grace is um, almost as Titus 2 puts it. It's the grace that actually... Um, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and godly and righteously in the present age. It's a grace that actually works in you faith, and it works in you repentance, it works in you sanctification. It does everything, right? It's a grace that does everything. It also receives the sacrifice of Christ laid down for us. Yeah, of course. That's yeah. Grace. Yeah, grace. yeah, okay, so maybe even a better way to, to, to answer your question is the grace brings regeneration. The grace changes the heart, which to what is the aspect you're speaking of, that, yeah, with a changed heart, now you can receive the, the work of Christ by faith. Yeah. yeah, an effectually working grace that changes the heart. Yeah, that's, that's a gospel grace. And that's not what these guys were coming into the church teaching. Um, so Peter spoke. Peter spoke, right? And look at the effect of Peter speaking is in verse 12. It says, all the people kept silent. That was a, that was a mighty word from Peter. But they go on, and it says, and, verse 12, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them, what God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so it seems like Paul and Barnabas are still going on about all these things that God had done um, through their gospel explanation, through their gospel preaching, 
They're still going on about everything that God was doing through them. Verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, after, uh, after Paul and Barnabas had stopped speaking, James speaks. And James answers, saying, brethren, listen to me. Now, I just want to stop right here really quickly because it's kind of, it's funny, isn't it, that um, if Peter is this, uh, the vicar of Christ on earth, if Peter is in fact the first pope, if he is this infallible speaker of, of everything, uh, doctrine and speaks ex cathedra, why is it that all of these other men are having to, to go on and give their judgments and give their concerns here on the issue? Peter spoke first. If what he says is, you know, infallible, why is the whole church still speaking? Well, I don't think anybody struggles with Peter being the first pope in here, so we don't need to hang out there, but it's just interesting that everybody else is still giving their judgments even after Peter speaks. Um, so, yeah, so now James speaks. Who is this James who, who stands up to speak? Does anybody know who this James is? We've seen one James already be beheaded, so it's not that James. He's the head of the Jerusalem church, isn't he? The pastor. Yeah, he's, he's one of the elders, the pastors. He's even called an apostle, yeah. What, what else about James do we know? He's the brother of Jesus. Yep. He's one of the brothers of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. So James would have been one of the, the earthly like half-brothers of Jesus, who the Bible also tells us did not believe in Jesus throughout Jesus' life and his earthly ministry. But um, he came to believe, obviously, after the resurrection. The resurrection has a ways of um, convincing people of things, you know. He's seen Jesus ri risen from the dead and, and became a believer and yeah, just as Wally said, he became a very prominent, very quickly became a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. Um, one, in fact, who's really going to speak with a, the same authority as Peter here in the church. Um, he, he's, he's here speaking at this uh, church council. Um, Paul, Paul calls him an apostle in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. So James is, James is somebody to, rec to be reckoned with here. And look what he says, verse 14. This is what James has to say. Verse 14, Simeon, he's speaking of Simon, Simon Peter. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Here, all James is doing is referring to what Peter had just explained, how God had saved the Gentiles. Verse 15, he said, With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And so what James is saying is that all the prophets agree with what Peter has just said. Peter has talked about how the, the Gentiles have been brought in by grace. They've been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Uh, James says all the prophets agree with this, just as it's written. And so even though he's saying all the prophets agree, he's just going to give one example of, of this being true. He's going to quote Amos 9. He's going to quote Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. And that's what you have there probably in italics or, or all caps in verse 16. It says, after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Okay, so what did Amos say must happen first before the Gentiles will be brought in? What did he say there in verse 16 is going to happen first? He's talking about this 
rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. Right? That's what he says is going to happen before um, the rest of mankind will come and seek the Lord. So all we have with that statement is just another messianic prophecy of this one who's going to come and reign and restore the kingdom of David. You know, 2 Samuel 7 talks about this, another prophecy of the Messiah, that he's going to reign on, on King David's throne forever. He's going to reign on the throne forever. What also is interesting is even in this prophecy um, of Amos, even he says that the prophets have even said this long ago. So even in Amos, this is nothing new either. Um, even he says the Lord has made these things know from long ago. What's, what's maybe, um, we've looked at it in probably three classes here in Sunday school. I know I looked at it in Galatians, John looked at it in Genesis. What's maybe one of the earliest prophecies, what's one of the earliest ways the prophets have made known that the Gentiles would in fact be saved? Any, anything come to mind? Which one? Genesis 3 or... Genesis 3, that's more specific what I was thinking about. Yeah. Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Yeah, same prophecy, really. But that's what I'm thinking about. Through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. That's very, very early. All the prophets have been making this known from long ago that the Gentiles would be brought in. Right? Through the exaltation of Christ, God really began to bring in all of mankind. Um, so with that being so, with all the prophets having said this, <laughs> with, what's that? Oh, Jeff, I'm sorry. We're yeah. going to find out who goes first. But, I'm first. I'm first. I'm first. All right, I'll be last. <laughs> uh, um, I had a question, though. Wasn't Abraham declared a prophet at one point, though, somewhere in the Scripture? Was Abraham a prophet? Where, I, I can't remember. I don't know where, but it wasn't. Okay. I just wanted to yeah. throw it out there. I don't know. I don't know of a reference for that, but yeah. yeah. Well, what I think is amazing about this, okay, is um, <clears throat> I don't mean. I hope I don't steal your thunder here. You probably will. Go right ahead. <laughs> You'll probably say it better than I would. Go ahead. Well, no. What I'm saying is that you know what's interesting is because he quotes Amos here, mm -hmm. uh, and what Amos is talking about. That's what's amazing. Is what, what is Amos talking about? I will restore the tabernacle. Rebuild the tabernacle. I will rebuild it. Rebuild it. Restore it. Mm -hmm. okay, so the tabernacle of David, you know, representing his people, uh, representing his family. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's just literally the tent of David. Mm -hmm. David didn't build the tabernacle. Right. So this is so obviously metaphoric of his boundaries, you know, his kingdom, his, his people. Okay? Mm -hmm. So what's amazing is that uh, James is saying basically that this has happened mm -hmm. and that as a result of that, you saw the purpose clause of verse 17, so that right, the rest of mankind will seek the Lord. So it's almost like what happened in, in the new covenant in Jesus, mm -hmm. in the apostle, you know, um, people coming to Christ or up to this point, you know, it's like what happened up to this point is the fulfillment of the rebuilding of David's tabernacle. Mm -hmm. Gentile inclusion, right? And Gentile inclusion is the result. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I just say it's amazing. Yeah. It's just like, almost like he's saying like, you know, I don't know. And, but also that's the purpose of it. You know what I mean? The purpose kind of, of like this. Israel reconstituted under Christ. Yeah. And because of that, the Gentiles get brought in. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a significant time in I don't know what that redemptive history. history. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> let's not get hung up there. Okay. But yeah, that I mean, not, but that seems to be exactly what's going on. You know, and he's trying to make the point that Gentile inclusion was a prophesied thing to happen at the restoring of, of David's tent of his tabernacle. That's what's going to happen. They should have been expecting it. They shouldn't have been been bucking it like they were. They should have been fighting it. You know, they should have expected this really. Um, now, because all of that's true, look, uh, another, another therefore, verse 19, therefore, James says, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And so all, Paul, all, all James is saying is that, yes, because all this is true, I agree. I agree with what Peter said. I agree with all the prophets of Scripture. I agree with Paul and Barnabas um, that these Gentile believers should not have to keep all 613 Old Covenant laws to be saved, but, like I said, there's always a but here, but James is going to add a, a caveat to this. He's going to caveat this just a bit. He is going to say there is some things that he thinks the Gentiles who are being saved should do. Not to be saved, but some things that they should do as part of their, their new uh, Christian life and their inclusion um, into the people of Israel. Um, because that's going to be a very difficult thing. Now, there's a list here beginning in verse 20 of four things. Let's just go through the list that, of these four things that James is going to say that would be good for these Gentiles to do. Verse 20, it says, But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols. And these things, uh, most everybody uh, sees as being a reference to foods. Foods that have been sacrificed to idols. Right, these things that would happen in these pagan um, worship temples, they'd sacrifice this food to idols. Um, uh, James is saying that they should abstain from eating these things. The second thing on the list, he says, and from fornication, which is just that word porneia, which just is, is an overarching blanket statement of any sexual sin, of course. You know, that goes without saying, really. Um, it should have been a given. Abstain from all sexual sins and from what is strangled. What is strangled here is uh, just one of those stipulations, even in the law, that, that the Jews had that they, there was proper ways of preparing meats to eat it. And you couldn't strangle the animal. You actually had to, to, to kill it and drain the blood. Right? And then the, that kind of goes along with the fourth thing he says, to abstain from and from blood. Mostly that goes to, most think that goes together with the strangling situation. So just properly prepare your food um, to eat before you eat it. Now, the, the, the questions come along with why is it that James picked these four requirements for the Gentiles? I mean, he could have picked a plethora of things, really, and it's really debated. I'll give you what I think is one, really a couple of the primary reasons that James picked these. Um, I think first and, and first and foremost, he's not giving these as another list of things they must do to be saved. They're already Christians, brother. He's just saying, as Christians, they should do these things. Um, I think this list here is parts of their repentance. This, these would be natural things that would be part of their turning from paganism. Mm -hmm. Because everything listed in these, of these four things are, were integral parts of pagan worship. You know, the blood and the sexual craziness that went on with the... <coughs> prostitutes and stuff like that, all of these things were part of pagan worship. And so these are just very basic, natural things that these Christians should have been turning from when turning from paganism uh, to Christ. 
but there's also another very important reason that I think that this list is given. And James mentions it here in verse 21, the next verse. He says, for, you know, he's just given this list of four things. Turn from these four things, verse 21, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And so the other issue for these Gentiles to realize is that they are going to be around and in fellowship with, with Jewish Christians who have their entire lives had this law preached to them. And the law is going to continue to be preached in these synagogues, right? So they need to have some consideration for those who have been under this law their entire lives. And so these are some very basic principles um, to, to try to live and to fellowship and to not cause the Jewish Christians to unduly um, or unnecessarily stumble, right? Just some ways, some, some very basic things, minimal, minimal things with food regulations and stuff to keep their brothers from stumbling, right? So, so these rules were given for a couple reasons. One, it was just part of their turning from paganism, just very uh, basic things. And then two, these are things that would help their relationships uh, with the Jewish Christians. It would keep them from stumbling, over. Like a spiritual cleansing in the church? A spiritual cleansing? I think it's almost just like, like especially with some of these food regulations, they don't seem to be um, uh, necessitated for everyone for all times because like even when you go to 1 Corinthians 8, Paul almost explicitly says it is okay to eat things that are offered up. So we know these aren't universal things, you know, they're just things given to these Gentile Christians who are going to be um, in such a, such a close fellowship with, with Jewish Christians who have forever been Jewish, just ways to not cause their brothers to, it's not troubling their brothers. You know, they're so, their consciences are seared by never touching, you know, unclean things and never eating food that's strangled. Yeah, yeah just a principle, yeah. You have another way of saying that, maybe? Well, well Chris, I was just saying, I think that's good what you pointed out there, that, mm-hmm. you know, this is, you know, obviously not to cause you know, Jewish believers to stumble. Mm-hmm. Because I think we forget, you know, like you said earlier, just how significant the Jew-Gentile barrier was. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The Jew, you know, for thousands of years has been taught, you know, the Gentiles are the pagan dogs. They're outside, they're, un- they're uncircumcised, they're, they're unclean, they're profane. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there's a flood of the Gentiles coming into yeah. Jewish fellowship. And so there are cultural norms that are just have just evaporated before Jews' eyes, and he's trying to cope with that. Yeah. The whole book of Romans is written to try to resolve that. Right. You know what I mean? So I think we kind of, it's hard for us in the 21st century yeah. to try to grasp the, 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 the chasm between Jew and Gentile. Right. You know what I mean? So I, and I do think, I think you're right that it is, I mean, this council was speaking to a specific situation that erupted in the book of Acts. You know what I mean? It wasn't like they were laying the groundwork here for the church of all time. You know, like, in, 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 that wasn't like the scope of what they were looking at. Right. Yeah. Even though sexual morality is sin for all time, of course, mm-hmm. and idolatry. So I guess it does apply to all time. Yeah. Well, yeah, some of them do, like sexual immorality, of course, but um, so yeah, like what Emilio was saying is I almost see a little give and take from both sides. Mm-hmm. Because he only gives four things here for these Gentiles to, you know, just um, out of their, out of the kindness of their hearts to live with their brothers. Don't do these minimalistic things. I mean, he could have added way more to because the 
Because the other thing to consider, like Emilio was saying, is these Jews are probably going to be stumbled over a lot more things than just these. These Gentiles are going to be offending them probably in a lot of ways. So both sides are going to have to learn to live with each other and fellowship and realize that they're both in the people of God now. God's not making those distinctions anymore. Mm-hmm. Both sides are going to have to give. Both sides. Um, so we've got to move really unbelievably fast. Let's go here. Okay, so um, this is what was decided. James has spoken last. Uh, verse 22 says, after James spoke, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. Okay, so the council has come together. They've decided what it would be helpful. First of all, circumcision is not necessary to be saved, but we think these Jewish Christians should, should do a few things to help um, the brethren they're going to live amongst. And they write a letter. Let's just read the letter. I'll try not to interfere with it for time's sake. Um, it says, this is what the letter is going to say that they're sending to Antioch. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words and settling your souls. So first of all, they're trying to say straight right off the bat, these men who came up to you from Judea, from our number, we did not send them. They're trying to make it crystal clear that um, this false teaching of circumcision was not from them, right? Verse 25, it says, uh, Since these guys came and disturbed you, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So, this letter was put together um, based primarily not on even what Peter said, based primarily on what James said. This letter is put together and is sent up to the Gentile believers in Antioch with very minimalistic requirements for them to follow. No circumcision, no Sabbath, no sacrificial system, none of these things. Um, just a few regulations to keep the Jewish Christians from stumbling. And so let's just read here 30 through 35. Let's just see the church's reaction to this letter. This church who has been upset by this false teaching that they must be circumcised. Verse 30 says, So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, which is really north. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. You can imagine getting the encouragement of this letter. First of all, they don't have to be circumcised. Probably half the church was you know, happy about that. The other half is that they don't have to keep all of the law to be saved. That's an even greater burden than being circumcised is knowing, wow, we don't have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. That's, I mean, they're encouraged by that. Verse 32 says, Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, notice here another function of a prophet. It's not always foretelling the future here. Because they were prophets themselves, they encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. 
After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. Verse 34 is kind of actually an added, uh, something added into the text to make sense of the later verse. But then verse 35 says, But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others the word of the Lord. And so what we have here is everything really seems to be resolved. Uh, the council had come together. Everyone was in full agreement. These Gentile Christians do not have to keep the Mosaic law to be saved. Uh, the letter was taken back up to Antioch, and there was peace. There was peace in the church. The fellowship was restored. Everybody was encouraged that the gospel that they received and was trusting in, faith alone in Christ, was enough for them to be saved. And they were relieved, and they rejoiced in that. And so really in Antioch, it seems like everything um, was, with all the planets had come back and were aligned. Um, if anybody's got kids, it's time to pick up the kids, but we're going to try to finish up here, too, like in the next Just five minutes. a comment on the letter. Yeah. Um, I think it's very important that uh, the implication that it was out of a, a, a growing pain, of course, but the implication of, one, a ministry outside of the authority of the church mm -hmm. should not be a warranted authority, in a sense. It should always be under the authority of, of the church. I think that's an implication. I mean... Maybe I'm reading into the text. Which Are you talking about the false teachers that came up and I'm started teaching about them? them sending a letter saying, hey, these guys weren't sent by us. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You want to have a letter of commendation. Right. You know? Right. It's like membership. When we go, if I was to leave membership and go to another church, I would right. want a clean bill of health saying, hey, this guy, he represents sound doctors. Yeah. He's been a good standing member. Yeah. And that you should receive him. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I think we, should, we shouldn't pass over... Um, the dangers of not being under the authority of the church when we go uh, yeah. and, and out in the world. You know? no, that's a good point. I mean, these, these people are definitely submitted, um, as, as we have said already, to the apostolic teaching. Right? They go to another church, to the apostles, to, to clarify doctrine. You know, they're going to submit to that teaching. Well, I don't think Paul would... Yeah, if everything would have gone crazy in Jerusalem, the apostles would have started teaching a false gospel. I don't think Paul would have given in. But you just see how the churches work together and they come under the church, work together with the church. Um, that's almost another distinction that, that needs to be made in this text because some people go so far as to making a, almost an ecclesiology out of this. You know, the Presbyterians have a whole ecclesiology for coming under the authority of another group, which, you know, we don't see this text teaching um, at all. Um, they're just... Yeah, as we said, seeking um, basically help in a doctrinal issue under a more mature church. And I would just say it's because the apostles are there. Yeah. I mean, that's why they went there. It wasn't because, you know, other, any other reason than that, but that the apostles were there and so the apostles could come together and work this out and so that they could have, the, uh, as Josh is saying, the, a letter from the apostles amending their gospel and, and, and denying the heresy. Now, that's all that was really going on here. So... Let's just finish up here. In three minutes, we're going to finish this chapter. Verse 36 says, so, so that was, as, as I said, there's going to be two conflicts in the church in Acts chapter 15. That was the first conflict, which is the most significant, that the gospel was being tampered with, gospel, uh, the gospel of grace. Now we're going to see another conflict um, in the church, starting at verse 36. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. You know, Paul's getting stir-crazy. 
You know, he went on that first missionary journey. It's been a year since his, his preaching, his missionary work. He wants to go back and return to the churches. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Um, this is, I think, one of really like the saddest events in the book of Acts. This is sad. If you realize, if you try to put yourself in the scene here of, of this dispute between these two brothers, I mean, think about all that Paul and Barnabas had just gone through together. Um, they, they founded that church in Antioch together. Remember, Barnabas went and sought out Saul to help him teach. They risked their lives together in this, in this year to two missionary long journey. You know, I mean, they were going through stonings, through persecutions, through all of these things together. Um, they had continued to teach and disciple this church. They had just de defended the church against one of the greatest heresies that could come against it. You know, this mosaic law-keeping for salvation. They had just done all these things together. And despite all of that, um, they end up separating ways. And not in a good way. They end up separating over a, a, an argument, a dispute, about whether to take John Mark along with them to their next missionary journey. Now, do you all remember, just flip over maybe just a page to Acts 13.13. 13. All this is rooted out of this little mention in Acts 13.13 13 of what happened during their first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas took John Mark with them on their very first missionary journey. And look what uh, chapter 13, verse 13 says. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, and they came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's all it said. So we didn't talk a lot about it at that time, but now we know what happened. He deserted them. That's the word that Paul uses. He deserted us, meaning he bailed out. He chickened out. He left us to this, to this missionary work. Um, but there's not a lot given to us other than the fact that, that he abandoned them and, and chickened out. Um, I think the reason Paul would have mainly been afraid to take him with him again is that he has these churches in mind. You've got to think about these churches are going through persecution. If you don't want to bring a weak brother with you who's going to fall away again and, and, and stumble these Gentiles. They need some faithful men to come into their midst. You know, some people are going to encourage them who have been faithful through persecution. I think Paul would have been afraid that maybe... Um, John Mark might have like, bailed on him again, and that would have been very unhealthy for these churches, you know, to see that, to witness that. Um, Colossians 4.10 tells us that Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. So I think that, you know, could have been a lot into the reason of why he, he wanted to take John Mark with him, give him another chance. I mean, Barnabas is just that kind of guy anyways. His name means son of encouragement. He would have been wanting to restore John Mark, with, with good intentions, I'm sure, but I think Paul, with the gospel may have been at stake, and, you know, so he didn't want to do it. Um, I think later Paul, in his epistles, does mention that John, you know, brings him some stuff or encourages him in some way. So, so it has a happy ending, like Josh is saying. 
it has that, like, at the end of Second Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy. I mean, this is like, he says, one of his last letters to be written. He knows he's about to go die. He says, bring John Mark to me. You know, he's helpful for my ministry. So John Mark re- regains his standing with the Apostle Paul, as does Barnabas. You know, Paul mentions Barnabas as well. So it has a happy ending. But this is just an ugly uh, event that the Bible doesn't hide from us. You know, the Bible's not trying to whitewash all of the instances. I mean, this wasn't a good, a good debate between these brothers. They should have been able to work this out. So you know what that word sharp means? What is it? You know what the Greek The sharp disagreement? Yeah, what is that? I don't know which word that was. I don't know. Yeah, but I guarantee you it's, uh, um, it's, it's emphatic. Really? I mean, yeah, it's a sharp disagreement that occurred between them. I mean, they, they, they separate from each other. You know, some people try to rationalize it. Well, okay, well, it's so good that now we have two missionary groups going out rather than one, but Luke's not painting this as a good picture here. A sharp disagreement isn't, isn't healthy. So that was, the other, um, uh, that was the other conflict that we saw in Acts chapter 15 is, is Barnabas and, and Paul, but that, that's going to get restored in the future. But the more important thing that we saw today was this, this dispute of what is the gospel that's what was the most important thing of Acts chapter 15, is that they had to deal with the heresy of uh, circumcision being necessary for salvation. And so that's, that's, that's the most important thing you can get from Acts chapter 15, is to see that the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, has been defended by all of the apostles as they came together in a council and they worked this out. And God's been gracious enough to give that to us in the scriptures. We don't have to wonder what the gospel is. We don't have to wonder what we must do to be saved. Right? God saw fit to, to give that to us in the scriptures. So uh, we ran way over. Um, let's pray and go to worship. Well, Father, God, I do just thank you for putting in your scriptures um, with clarity uh, what the gospel is. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, for working out all these things for us. We thank you that we are in a place in church history, that we have all of your scripture um, worked out for us, all of your um, doctrines and all of your gospel worked out for us so that we don't have to wonder. Father, you've given us uh, the grace of having all of your word laid out for us in, in in our Bibles. Father, may we appreciate what we have. May we go to service now. Um not wanting to take for granted the fact that we have your word. Father, please fill Pastor Emilio as he preaches your word to us today. May we, may we accept it for what it is, the very word of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.